As we prepare uh, to hear the word this evening from 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we'll turn in a song of preparation, standing together singing number 325, All Glory, Laud, and Honor. 325, I think it says 235, it's actually 325. As I mentioned, we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, considering three short verses this evening, verses 3 through 5. Uh, as you turn there, and before we read, I want to take the time to paint the way that we receive this text. Uh, and I want to give you a picture of what the people receiving this letter were enduring, that we might hear it as they would have heard it. Uh, because we aren't the original recipients of this letter whose life experience is being addressed here I want to connect us to those circumstances that we might hear it as they would. Now, these are churches that Peter refers to as elect exiles, as those who are suffering persecution of various kinds. And he refers to these, uh, this kind of persecution in various ways throughout the letter as unexpected, as fiery trials, as the suffering of insults, slanderous accusations of wrongdoings, beatings, social ostracism, sporadic mob violence, and local government sanction. And then as he approaches in chapter 4, he, he writes to them regarding the scorn that they receive from their culture simply for the way that they choose to live and the way that their culture, pagan culture, entices them to join with them. They deride them and ridicule them for their lifestyle. Because pagan peoples live as if all there is in life is the pleasure of the present. 
There isn't anything more to look for but that right here, right now. And Christian people, differently than this, don't live that way, indulging in the pleasures and the passions of the flesh, because right now they know and hope is not all that there is. And finally, he also gives them very clear warnings to be on guard against the devil who, roars, who, who roams around like a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he may. And I say all of this because it's relevant for us. We're subject to the scorn and enticement of our culture to join them in their lifestyle, to live the easy way that they do. And we're also subject to the plots and ploys of the devil to bring us to stumble and fall. And so it's helpful to keep in mind as we read the first thing that he chooses to write at people living in these circumstances. This is the written word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, most earnestly we seek your face, and so it is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we ask that you would bless the teaching of your word, that it may go out boldly to the hearts of your people, that it would encourage them in the many places that you have called them to. May we this evening receive clearer vision of your glory, which you've made known to us in the face of your Son, and the hope that we have in his resurrection power, that we may cling more and more to you and your promises, for we ask it in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, I changed, this afternoon, I changed the introduction that I had for this sermon. Um, I got to bring this text to the Santa Clarita Church Plan. I also got to bring it to my classmates. And both of those times that I presented this sermon to them, I referenced a favorite poem of mine by a British-American author, W.H. Auden. In his poem, he talks about the nature and dynamic of suffering, and he paints it as an individual and a solitary event that people suffer in abandonment and hopelessness. Nobody turns to the cries of the, uh, of the sufferer. They leave them be. Who's, everybody's too busy to turn to the suffering individual. And so that person is rightfully, in Auden's view, in, in, in his poem, hopeless, hopelessly abandoned. And initially, I said that Peter doesn't view suffering this way, nor, did he, nor does he treat it this way, because he writes to this suffering church to give them hope. He writes to them out of compassion. And though I've made brief reference to it this evening, I was really convicted this morning by the sermon that I heard from Pastor Gordon down in Escondido. He, referenced, uh, he preached a text, rather, on uh, the prodigal son in Luke 15. If you remember, the prodigal son is about a son who demands from his father his inheritance. He goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance now. Right now, the present was all that there was for this son, and so he went to his father and demanded it from him. And I think that's very relevant for us to consider this evening. Perhaps there are young people here, or perhaps you have children off in college, or children that are out of college, or you yourself are feeling this way where you look to the promises and the goodness of the Father and the way that our culture lives and the easy lives that they have. And you think to yourself, this is, this is bleak. This is hard. It's not easy. God, I want blessing now. Give me inheritance now. 
And so Peter writes then to a church living in a culture that have easy lives, that persecute them, that ridicule them. And he writes to them to remind them that right now isn't all that there is. He writes to them to remind them that there's more to come. And that's what our text is about this morning. He writes to them about the basis of their hope, the character and object of their hope, and the power that guards hope. And we'll look at that text this morning in that order, this evening rather, in that order. The basis of hope in verse 3, the character of hope in verse 4, and the power that guards hope in verse 5, in order that we might not view life in such a way that we demand from God our inheritance now. So first, the basis of our hope. Now the first thing that Peter says to this church that's suffering reminds them that the basis, the grounds, or the foundation of their hope is completely and utterly outside of themselves. He does this in two ways, and the first clause in verse 3 shows us this. First, he says, our hope is according to his great mercy. Now, it's important for us to consider mercy. Mercy is never merited. Like grace, it's undeserved. But alternatively to mercy, or to grace, excuse me, which deals with what we get, mercy has to deal with what we're not given in the context of a legal trial or a legal ordeal. What mercy means is that the required status has not been met, judgment is earned, and yet judgment is either relinquished or lightened. In the case of judgment being lightened, we might think of something like a mercy blow, to kill with less brutality, to execute judgment with ease so that the suffering of the individual is lightened. In the case of, suffering, of judgment being relinquished, it's altogether abandoned. In this instance, justice isn't being dispensed at all. But there's also a third option. It's been given to another. God's justice, because he is a just and righteous God, has to be met, which means that justice, for us to receive mercy, justice was fully poured out to the fullest extent of the law on another. And so grace is a gift that has not been merited, and mercy is a kindness that's shown in the face of unmerit, demerit, in the face of those who deserve God's just penalty or wrath, death and condemnation. The second thing that Peter says then is that our hope is, a, is the result of his recreative action. It is an action which has already occurred. He has already done it. It's not something that we need to strive for or cause to happen or bring to pass by our action. And this makes plenty of sense, I think, to the most of us. Which of us, I, I wonder, participated in our birthing process? We didn't generate ourselves. We did not assist our mothers in our birth. If anything, we were unhelpful. We are passive problems in this project of new creation. And yet we are recipients of the kind of mercy of God which then explodes onto the field of reality. And so as passive agents, it is God himself who has given us rebirth and new life instead of death and condemnation. And so then we might wonder, okay, well, you know, if, if we didn't participate in this, re, in this spiritual recreation, then what is the active agent that has caused us to be born again? 
And Peter states clearly, it's not us, but it's through the resurrection power of Jesus that we are ushered into this inheritance. And it's therefore fitting then that Peter calls it a living hope, for its object is himself the one who was raised from the dead and is now living and reigning. And if you're anything like me, as I was thinking and and, and meditating on this text, I couldn't help but feel a sense of irony for Peter, of all people, to say that this is a living hope and to describe the resurrection of Christ in this way. If you remember, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus meets with two of the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and he begins to explain to them, from Moses to the prophets, all of the things concerning himself. He says to them, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer all these things and then enter into his glory? He had already explained, of course, all of these things prior to his crucifixion. He told them that he would be raised from the dead, and now after the fact, He's explaining to it to them, it, it all to them again. And so inconceivable to them was it that Jesus would be raised from the dead, as it was foretold in all the scriptures, that they didn't recognize the risen Messiah standing before them in the flesh. And then you fast forward a little bit, a couple of verses. The apostles have now received this testimony from these two disciples and from Mary Magdalene after their encounter. And Jesus appears to them, the twelve apostles, of which Peter is a prominent member. And they think that he is an immaterial spirit. They couldn't believe it. They're incredulous. But now Peter calls this hope a living hope because he saw him in the flesh. You remember the apostle John in his letter says, that which we have touched which we have seen with our eyes and testified to you about. This hope is based on the resurrection that he himself, Peter, upon seeing with his own eyes, could not believe and now testifies to us about, is living in the flesh. Now, unlike many of the things that you or I might put our faith or our trust or our confidence in, the gospel is not uncertain. You might buy a stock hoping that the market might favor your investment. You might toss a coin into a well hoping that your wish might come true. You might wish upon a star. We hope aimlessly in things all the time. Wild hopes over which we have no certainty will come to fruition, will come to pass in the future. But the hope of the gospel is not an abstract or whimsical or meaningless or arbitrary or unfounded, un, you know, unbiased hope. It is a clear, concrete, and certain hope because its object is himself alive. He is the firstborn of the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He has sent his spirit, spirit to radiate life, his life. His spirit is now a life-giving spirit, radiating life into the hearts of his people, so that they themselves might experience radical rebirth from death and darkness to instead what we didn't deserve, light and life. And so hope in our inheritance salvation is living because it brings new life to God's people through the one who is himself alive. Now, this rebirth vocabulary is very interesting language for Peter to use and pick up on in describing what's, be, what's happening in the process of salvation for believers. 
In, in Gnosticism and in other ancient mystery cults, this same vocabulary of rebirth constituted elements of ecstasy, where it was the privilege of the elite and the rich to partake in sacramental initiation rites, described as nothing other than rebirth. This was common vocabulary in their day. It was an ecstatic, mystical experience that you had to buy your way into. But Christian rebirth, as Peter shows it here, is very different. Its origin, its initiation, is not rooted in our socioeconomic status. It's not rooted in some secret ritual we embark on a path to discover. It's not rooted in our own initiative action. Rebirth for Christians is caused by the Spirit of God who radically invades our hearts, applying to us the blood and the life of the Son. This is a heritage, a heritage that we're baptized into, washed by the blood of Christ and by His Spirit to make us a people who, though in a dying world, are new creations. And we are therefore one, we are therefore children, rather, of one who Peter calls is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we ourselves call Father. And therefore, with and on the basis of Christ, we have a certain hope with Him. We are heirs, heirs to inheritance, and it's that inheritance that Peter now goes on to describe as he begins to describe the character of our hope. That's the first, the first word he uses to, to, as, he, as he describes our, inheritance, uh, our hope. He calls it a living hope. A living hope in what? An inheritance. And it's worth noting here again that as with re rebirth, we are passive projects, passive participants with regard to inheritance. This is foreign to us. We don't have the deed or the title to the inheritance by our natural birth, but we're baptized into it by the Son. And so, since it's foreign to us, we might ask, what's the content of this hope? What's the content of this inheritance? What exactly is it that we're getting? You know, if you found out that your parents' kids had found, set up a, a trust fund for you, you might wonder how old you had to be when you would come into it, and how much money you would be coming into when you came of age. And so, too, we wonder what exactly are we inheriting when Peter speaks of this inheritance that we hope in. Well, Peter indicates in verse 5 that it is the full revelation of the new creation which has yet to be revealed. But it's much more than just that. It is the perfect and perpetual presence of God with His people in that new creation. This is a massive biblical theme. Psalm 16 says, The Lord is my chosen portion, inheritance language. He is my cup. You hold my lot inheritance language. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He goes on, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Similarly, Psalm 73 evokes a similar picture. And by the way, this is a psalm that laments the prosperity of the wicked, the ease of life that the wicked have, has. He doesn't understand how can the wicked prosper and have such an easy life. And yet he concludes by the end of the psalm, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he closes, as for me, it is good to be near to my God. I have made the Lord my refuge. He's indicated to us that in heaven, there is nothing apart from God himself that we long for. And justifiably then, Samuel Rutherford, a famous Puritan, said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven with thee, or excuse me, oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell for me. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven for me, for thou art all the heaven that I want. It's a very different way to think about heaven. And as another, another writer noted, Heaven without God would be like a honeymoon without a groom. I don't understand that one, but I do understand this one. Or a palace without a king. So our inheritance, our portion, is God himself. When we will, as the Apostle John says, be, lo- be with him and see him as he is because we will have bodies like his own. And so what we long for is the unhindered presence of the God of all glory in that new creational kingdom that has yet to be revealed. And it's worth noting here that that God of all glory is one who is himself unchangeable, eternal, infinite, incorruptible, and so much more. And this brings up a relevant point for us to consider when we say that we'll have bodies like his own or when we go on to describe who God is, we use language that describes who God, what God is not. Unchangeable, undefiled, unfading. And we do this because as sinful creatures, but also as finite creatures who were made by an eternal God who is outside of anything that we could ever imagine, we can't describe God in His essence. We can't describe God as He is. And so, too, Peter here, in describing the inheritance for which we long, uses language that describes what it is not like. He uses language to say what the inheritance is not. And ironically, then, the way that he describes this inheritance is far better than the inheritance that Israel longed for and had came into possession of in the Old Testament. That land was subject to devastation and pillage by the Philistines and the Babylonians. It was subject to moral and religious impurity. It was subject to decay, and it could be taken away, as we saw. But our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We can't even describe how good it is. Because our bodies right now are corruptible, fading, and defiled. It is imperishable in that. It is not subject to death or corruption. It is not limited by time, but it is eternal. It cannot be pillaged by the Philistines. It will never be destroyed. We will never lose it. It is undefiled in that it is never spoiled, corrupted, or polluted, but it remains free from any filth or blemish. Unlike our streets, which are subject to pollution, or our walls, which are subject to graffiti, it is undefiled and imperishable. 
Finally, it is unfading in that it does not lose its quality or character. It does not wither or fade. When you buy a house 20 years later, the pipes start to leak. The Statue of Liberty was once a true copper color, but over time its true color has faded. And so Peter describes our inheritance in these ways. But he doesn't stop there, people of God. He says that our inheritance is preserved for us in heaven. And the key idea that we can take away from this clause is that no matter how tumultuous our lives or the things that we experience in this world with shaky foundations, we can rely upon it, for it is held securely in the grasp of God the Father. Now, you'll remember that God guarded the Garden of Eden from the impurity and the corruption of man after the fall. Now, he guards that celestial city for which we long. The inheritance is kept safe. It's outside the reach of danger. The devil can do no harm to that place because that place cannot be corrupted by that which is corrupted. It doesn't belong there. It's incompatible. It cannot pierce the walls of that city. Now, while earthly possessions are subject to constant variation and change, our earthly one is safely guarded in heaven. Our eternal one, excuse me, not earthly one. But it is not just the inheritance that's kept safe, people of God. The inheritors are themselves the present recipients of the new creational kingdom in the present as it breaks its way into this kingdom with shaky foundations. And thus it's a glorious truth that the inbreaking kingdom power of God guards us in that inheritance. The power of God guards our hope. Verse 5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now here Calvin is exceptionally helpful. I found this so beautiful. I, I want to read to you what he wrote. What does it avail us that our salvation is laid up in heaven when we are tossed here and there in the world as in a turbulent sea? What can it avail us that our salvation is secured in a quiet harbor when we are driven to and fro amidst a thousand shipwrecks? The Apostle Paul, therefore, anticipates objections of this kind when he shows that though we are in a world exposed to daggers, we are yet kept by faith, and that though we are thus nigh to death, we are yet safe under the guardianship of faith. But as faith itself, through the infirmity of the flesh, often quails, we might always be anxious about tomorrow were it not the Lord to aid us. Here's Calvin's point. It's helpfully drawn out. What use is an indestructible, untainted inheritance if we ourselves are unable to attain or reach it? We'd, have, we'd be hopeless. We'd have no reason to put our hope in it. And so the point is that by the power of God, we are guarded by God to have faith, the kind of faith that actually yields the hope for which we long in our inheritance. You know, Peter's language here, to say you are guarded by God's power, guarded in power, it's militaristic language. And so to evoke 
Once again, that garden imagery, you remember that that angel of the Lord stood guard outside the, the Garden of Eden. So we who are once guarded, excuse me, we who are once guardians of that garden, who were then guarded from entrance into it because of our corruption, are now treated as those who are sanctified and holy, such that we are guarded into that new creational kingdom. We're escorted into it so that we never stumble to the left or to the right, so that we do not strike our foot against a stone and fall. Satan cannot touch God's new creation, people of God. The God of all peace guards his people. He protects them from the arrow that flies by day. He protects them from the pestilence that stalks in the darkness and from the destruction that wastes at noonday. This is Psalm 91. He commands his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. He will satisfy us with long life and he will show us his salvation. No matter then how weak we are, our salvation is not uncertain because it is sustained by the power of God. So those who have been given faith and new birth, those ones then have faith that is held up by God's power. And thus faith is sustained not only for the future, but also for the present. That faith then finally leads us to the fact that this salvation is yet still a relic of the future. It has yet to be revealed. And so this language of unveiling is appropriate, as with the Old Testament saints who looked forward to the promises of Christ and saw them in veiled form. So too, we look forward to the promises of that new new creational kingdom, and we see them and experience them in veiled form. We have promises that give us a foretaste of what it will be like. We're told that our names are already written in the Lamb's book of life, the scroll of our inheritance. And it is to that Lamb that all things belong, the King of all creation, who in himself possesses all things and has made us heirs, heirs to a Father who, James says, is the giver of every good and perfect gift, a father in whom there is, no va- sh- there, there is no shadow or variation due to change. So we can trust it. It's a sure inheritance. That which has yet to be revealed then is nothing less than the cosmic unfolding of everything that has been promised to those who are heirs with Christ Jesus. When the sky rolls back and we see that lamb ascending, descending in glory to once and for all subdue all nations under his feet. So what? So what? What's the significance for us, those of us who are struggling with the ease of life with, with, with which we see our pagan, our, our non-Christian neighbors have? The pleasure they have in the present What use is it to those kids here who are in college who watch all their classmates participate in lives of pleasure, who are struggling to honor God in their conduct, who are the subject of scorn, whose friends or or co-workers respond to them by saying, why do you live like that? It's so stupid. You believe in God? It's the 21st century. Come on. That's old-fashioned. Eat, drink, and be merry, man. YOLO. 
You only live once. This life is all that there is, says the world. But Peter reminds us, the best is yet to come. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble at their swelling, we do not fear. We don't fear because we know that there is a city, excuse me, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. It is the holy city of the Most High God who dwells in her midst. He is not moved. And so therefore, too, as we long for that future inheritance, know that we will not be moved. No, we trust and we long and we look forward to the cosmic unveiling when that morning dawns. You know, Auden's poem that I referenced at the beginning of this sermon may have promoted the idea that suffering is a hopeless event, one done in abandonment, but that's the worst take for Christians on suffering that there ever was. You couldn't be more wrong about the nature of suffering. You couldn't be more wrong about the nature of the Christian life as we long for that heavenly home. As we endure the darkness of life, as we endure the, 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 the attacks of the devil, the scorn of our neighbors, and whatever may come as Christianity continues to grow more and more unpopular with our culture. And I'll tell you why that's the worst take on suffering that there ever was. There was one who suffered and issued forth the ultimate cry of abandonment and hopelessness. And he did it on the cross as he suffered the penalty and wrath of our God that we deserved, crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He suffered the ultimate judgment ordeal for you and for I of death and condemnation so that we might have light and life and blessing. And he did this so that the message of the Bible would never convey to believers hopelessness or abandonment or that their hope for that matter was meaningless. He did this so that we would have great hope in our inheritance, certainty. One commentator notes the inheritance, the kingdom may thus be spoken of in different ways. In part, it is already present. In fullness, it is yet to come. To some, the present joy seems far more off than others. But even the most, most enthusiastic spirit feels at times as a heavy burden the imperfections of the present. And this is the dominant key in St. Peter. We must therefore hold firmly to the future sense here. The pilgrim, the stranger, the sojourner sees in hope the promised land, but sees it afar off. And his prayer is, thy kingdom come, Maranatha. And yet I might add all the while that we pray out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Our lips also issue forth in praise of his glory, all glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet Hosanna's ring. You are the King of Israel and David's royal son, now in the Lord's name coming, the King and Blessed One. Now you may have noticed that this passage opens up with a doxology. That's how Peter starts this passage. Words of praise to God. And so now like a, a stage painter, you probably have seen these videos on Facebook. I see them all the time. Like a stage painter 
who goes and throws paint and does some weird things and you can't make out what it is and then turns it upside down and throws some dust on it and suddenly it's a piece of art. I want to unveil to you the true movement of this text. Before you say, thy kingdom come in the Lord's prayer, you first ask that God's name would be hallowed. Hallowed means greatly revered or honored or blessed. There is a reason then that much of the Psalms are praise Psalms that extol the glory and the goodness of our God. There's something that shifts people of God in the posture of our hearts when we transfix our eyes from the dull sufferings of this present life to the glory of life that is to come. Suddenly, the not-so-surprising fiery trials that Peter speaks of in chapter 4, verse 12, that barge their way in, unwanted and unwelcome, past our locked doors, they don't retain their power. Those, those allures that we feel towards an easier life, towards the temptations of the flesh, to give in to the power of the devil, they don't retain their power. No longer do they seem as mountains which blot out the sun, casting dark shadows of despair over our lives. Rather, they become as small clouds whose momentary presence in the face of the sun makes all the more real the warmth of the sun on a cool, windy day at the beach. Those fiery trials are but landmark experiences on our journey that point us forward to that good and blessed country. Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed, the sight of which refreshes the weary and oppressed. We may not know what joy awaits us there or radiance of glory and bliss beyond compare, yet we now sing the hymn, hymn unending with all the martyr song. The hymn unending, by the way, which Hebrews says, we sing with the heavenly host of Zion. We sing the hymn unending with all the martyr song throng amidst the halls of Zion, resounding full of song. The movement of these great truths concerning the mercy of God to us and the great hope for which we long transfixes our gaze from the sufferings and the turmoil of life in a sin-cursed world to the praise of His glory and to His grace. And this, in turn, people of God cyclically brings us greater comfort and greater hope as we ruminate, as we meditate on the goodness of what awaits for us. Suddenly what becomes important, what dominates our thoughts is no longer the suffering, but the beauty of what we have in Christ Jesus. And what we long for in heaven is God himself. Let's pray. Father, you have caused us who were formerly alienated from you, fatherless, orphans, and children of wrath, to be children who are inheritors of a great kingdom, where we will be with you where you are. Lord, it's so easy to have tunnel vision on the problems that we experience in life and the things that we suffer and the things that we don't have. Would you instead then move us from this to praise that we might have hearts that dwell intimately on the goodness of your grace, that we might be strengthened and encouraged in faith and cling in comfort and in hope to your promises in the life that we know is to come. For we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Responding to this, we will now sing Jerusalem the Golden, standing together, number 468, Jerusalem the Golden. <laughs>